you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read together verses 7 through 11. Sort of an inside baseball on how preach looks, at least most of the time for me. Sermon series begins with a basic outline of the book itself after having spent considerable time reading over the book. The more you read the book, you get kind of a feel for where the natural breaks are in the text itself, and you begin to outline. And that outline begins to set the structure for the next weeks and sometimes months in preaching. You know what passage is coming on what week, barring something unforeseen unfolding. And then there are those times when you begin to settle into that week's passage and, and look a little deeper. And sometimes there can be a complete change of course, surprises from the passage itself as you seek to look a little deeper into what the Bible is saying in a given passage. In this series, especially over the past several weeks, each week I open the Bible to next Sunday's text and I am so deeply committed at how short I come of the standards that God's word has set for us. In our passage this morning, one of its features is an invitation from Peter to look into the future with a kingdom optimism. When I speak of the future, and the same is true for many of us, I speak with such pessimism about what the future holds. Most of our coffee table conversation and sidebar discussions, water cooler talk, is focused around how bad things are and how bad things seem to be getting and how bad things will be in the future. Our talk is almost exclusively focused on the future of this world. And if that is your focus, perhaps there is cause for some pessimism. But Peter reminds us yet again and invites us into this new perspective, looking not into the future of this world, but the future of the kingdom. The invitation here is that as pilgrims and sojourners in a world that is not not our own, that we would look beyond the future of this world to the future of a world that is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, I am glad to announce to you this morning that for those of us who have entrusted our soul to Jesus, there is reason for great optimism. That optimism yields a different outlook. A hopeful outlook will yield a different perspective and motivation in our service. Peter's invitation that we would look into the future shapes the way we interact with one another. Within the body of Christ, how we interact is influenced by what we know the future to hold for us. Peter gives us four products of this newfound hopeful optimism in the verses that we're going to read together. 1 Peter chapter 4 Verses 7 through 11, if you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says in verse 7, now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 
May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Not only is Peter inviting us to look to the future of a world that is to come, to look to the future of the kingdom of Jesus, beyond the future of this world as we know it. He's filling the last remaining gap in this puzzle he's been putting together over the last several sections. Peter's addressed over the last several weeks how we interact with others. He began in a passage that we covered several weeks ago with dealing with how we interact within a society, a presumably ungodly society. When governing authorities are bent on rebellion against God, how are we to interact with that? What is our posture? What does that look like? Peter instructs us as to how we conduct ourselves within the society at large. Then there's that passage where Peter deals with the institution of slavery. We made some applications to our workplace and how we can interact there. And again, Peter is presuming that our workplace, those that bear earthly authority over us, are themselves unbelievers. And he helps us to resolve questions as to how we are to interact in those settings as well. In the passage we covered just a couple of weeks now, Peter's dealing with the home, specifically believing wives who are wed to husbands who are unbelievers and might use that setup in a patriarchal society to abuse in some way or oppress the wives entrusted to their care. There are broader principles for application in the lives of men and women, regardless of where we find ourselves within the family structure. So Peter has helped us to know how we interact with others in society, at work, and at home. And the last remaining piece of the puzzle is found here in verses 7 through 11. How it is that we interact with other members of the body of Christ. Look to verse number 7. Peter says, and the first line here is important. Now the end of all things is near. The Greek actually places all things at the beginning of the sentence here in order to place emphasis there, all things, for all things, the end is near. What Peter is not saying here is that we're closer today than we've ever been before to the coming of Christ. That is true. For that matter, it was true in Peter's day, and it's true in our day. But Peter's not dealing with the chronology of Christ's return. He's not saying we're at the precipice of the end of the world. What he's saying here is that the final piece of God's plan for redemption has been placed. Nothing else needs to be done. There are no missing ingredients or elements. The first word of verse 7 now, the little conjunction that finds its place there at the beginning of the head of the sentence, is to indicate to us that Peter wants to call our memory back to what has been described before, namely that Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. All of this bound up and brought to perfection in the resurrection of Jesus. With the sacrifice of Christ for our sin, with his resurrection from the dead, the full plan of God for the salvation of his people is in place. There's nothing left for God to do to redeem a people all his own. True enough, the kingdom will be consummated with the second coming of Jesus. But every piece of the plan for our redemption has found its place. 
For thousands of years, they looked for and longed for a Messiah. For thousands of years, God promised to bring remedy to the sin issue that so plagued mankind. But this issue has now in Christ and through his resurrection been resolved. Peter's saying we're living now in this last epic of history. Not a time of looking forward to what God might do next but a time of relishing what God has indeed done through his son, Jesus Christ. It is as though Peter is saying, in light of the salvation God has afforded us in Christ, in light of the fact that the final part of the plan has now unfolded, therefore be serious and disciplined for prayer. This is the first exhortation in our passage. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. Living in this last epoch of human history means we should be sharp and focused in our prayer. As we make our request known to God, we do so with great intensity and with confidence in his power to meet those needs. The terminology of be serious and discipline, these terms are almost synonymous in the Greek text. Peter's repeating essentially synonyms for the purpose of force to emphasize that we are to be sober-minded and again sharp in focus, urgent in our request. Runs parallel to what Peter says in chapter 1 and verse 13 saying, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Just as you focus your thoughts on the hope that's brought to bear through the revelation of Jesus, so too in prayer we are to sharpen our focus, to fix our gaze fully on the person of Jesus Christ and to turn over in our anxious hearts and minds the notion that indeed he is Lord. You realize in prayer that you come before the God of the universe who holds all authority, who bears all power. My wife and I for the past couple of nights have been watching a television program on Chernobyl. This came up in conversation with our family in light of what's going on in Ukraine today. And a lot of young people don't even know anything happened of any import in Chernobyl. But there was a major nuclear explosion in 1986 that was catastrophic and is still bearing negative consequences in that part of the world today. One of the scientists explaining to the Russian premier the seriousness of this issue described the neutrons that were a part of the composition of, of that uranium atom as bullets. And he said, in one gram of that uranium, there are one million billion trillion bullets. And the, the disastrous effects of that nuclear reaction was to send out those neutrons that function as less than microscopic bullets bouncing around the human body, ultimately resulting in death by radiation. One gram holds one million billion trillion neutrons or bullets. And there were pounds of uranium at the core of that nuclear reactor. And it settled into my imagination in that moment as he gave that astonishing statistic that there's not a single neutron 
in those million, billion, trillion that make up every gram of uranium that has escaped the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. From those elements so tiny they cannot be seen with the human eye to those so vast we stand in awe. All is under his authority. This is to whom we go in prayer. Thursday morning in our men's breakfast, I shared a little story from an old devotional to sort of bring to an end our time together. I think it assesses the, the circumstances of much of our prayer life quite well. There's a story about the origin of the game dominoes. You know, like you play dominoes with the numbers. The, sto the story is that dominoes as a game was born out of a monastery. There were two monks who were being punished. Apparently monks get in trouble too. And their punishment from their supervisor was that they were to be given to a season of silence. For so many days, they were not to speak. And apparently, this was an extended period. So in an effort in their isolation to be able to speak to one another, they found 28 rocks and began to put numbers on those rocks. And they eventually invented this game that they could play to pass their time in silence and solitude. There was one exception to their vow of silence. They were able to speak a word of prayer or to quote a verse of scripture. And it came to their mind, Dixit Dominus Domino Mio, which is my Lord said to my Lord, which comes from the Davidic Psalm, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus cites it in his ministry. And eventually, in the shorthand, they would shout the word Domino, which is Lord, to celebrate their victory over their opponent. When one would win, he would shout domino, which when you think about it, when you play dominoes and you shout domino, you're taking the Lord's name in Latin. But that's perhaps a discussion for another day. I had no idea of the origin of the game dominoes, but that little story provides an excellent illustration of much of the prayer life of many people today. They were able to get by with shouting domino because the appearance was from those who were looking on that they were in prayer. But in reality, they were only playing a game. And I'm convinced that for most people, when you bow in prayer, there is an absence of the full weight of that moment. The reality that we enter in through the blood of Jesus, the very presence of the God of the universe... Peter says, be serious and disciplined for prayer, which is to say with sharpened focus and urgency in light of the end, we are exhorted to pray and to pray earnestly. The second thing in verse number eight, Peter says, above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter gives priority to the virtue of love over all others. In Jesus' ministry, he said in his closing hours, by this all men will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. Jesus gives priority to the virtue of love. In the Apostle Paul's ministry, he said, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul gave priority to the virtue of love. And so too Peter, here in 1 Peter 4 and 8 says, Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, you may read that, an intense love for each other, and you may understand that to be about the depth of our affection or the intensity of the love that we have for others, but that's not exactly what Peter intends. The essence of what Peter is intending here is further implied by the use of this idea of maintaining an intense love. This is not about the depth or the the degree to which affection is expressed. This is about consistency. Over the course of time, as opportunity for disruption and harmony crops up, maintain an intense love for one another. When your brother or sister in Christ does something that is foolish or bothersome or aggravating or frustrating, maintain, even under those circumstances, an intense love. Continue to love regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how unlovable they may be in a given moment. Maintain love and affection for them. All across the New Testament, the language of family is used to describe the relationship that exists among brothers and sisters within the body. Even in explaining that, it's impossible to get away from that familial language of brothers and sisters. That's how we are described. We are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. We are co-heirs as son with the son, Jesus Christ. Family terminology is all over the Bible. And not only is it helpful or useful, it's become customary in our conversation. Our, our, our terminology is bound up in family language. It's also descriptive of the kind of bond that ought to exist within the body of Christ. Your earthly family experiences on some level are informing your ability to understand the nature of the bond, the union that exists between the people of Jesus. Now, even where your family situation has been less than ideal, you're able by observation to understand something of the closeness that exists between brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. I, I, have, I have three younger sisters. I'm, I'm the oldest, and some would say that explains a great deal about me. I'd always wish that I had some brothers, but because I didn't, I just treated the sisters like brothers from time to time. Bless their heart. And there, there were times when we would aggravate one another. We could not possibly be more different, especially the older two of, of my sisters. We could not be more different. And, and there were times as, as a child when I would find myself desiring to put my hands around their neck and not to hug, but to sort of close the gap. And a lot of you have had the same feeling about people within your own family, especially those Brothers and sisters, your smiles bespeak experiences in your past. But God forbid anyone else ever dreamed to do the same to one of those sisters I felt such an obligation to provide for the protection of. There may be times when they would aggravate me, drive me insane. They do that today. We can't get together today without that happening. But God forbid someone else seek to speak to or to treat them in a way that I wouldn't dream of doing now. But that was customary as a child. Y'all tracking with me? There are, there are people in your life, you say what you want to about them. But they better not nobody else say it. And for me personally, there's a bit of that feeling within the body of Christ. There have been people in my ministry who drove me to distraction with their aggravation. They're the kind of people that made you want to duck in a hall every time you saw them coming. But there better not anybody else ever make such an observation. 
This is a family that we find ourselves in as the body of Christ. That's the kind of maintenance, consistency, constancy in love that Peter is describing here in our passage. When I drive you nuts, love me anyway. And I'm going to love you when you drive me to distraction. That's what Peter is describing. Maintain an intense love for each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. The way Peter states this, love covers a multitude of sins, suggests that this was kind of an oral proverb that was well known. It doesn't parallel the Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek Old Testament. It seems that this is something that's pulled out of oral tradition. But there is a reference to this very proverb in the book of Proverbs. Love covers a multitude of sins, it says, but the parallelism there is that dissension stirs up strife. You've heard the old heads talk about stirring up a stink. That's the word picture here in the proverb. And perhaps that's the word picture Peter is playing with here in verse number nine. Love covers a multitude of sins. Whereas a divisive spirit, whereas the absence of love creates a stink, comes across something that might be problematic but stirs with dissension. Such that everyone gets the benefit of smelling the stink. Love, on the other hand, covers over a multitude of sins. It's a lot easier for you to love people in their transgression when you love them from the first. It's not hard to find fault with those that you have a rub with already. This is kind of the way bitterness begins to work its way in. There's some friction, there's some tension. And so there becomes this super sensitivity to anything that might be said, anything that might be done that could be interpreted in some way as an act of offense against us. But when our posture toward that person is, is positive, when our affection for that person is loving, when it's gracious, when it's Christ-like, we look for the best in them rather than investigating in order to find the worst the idea here is not to love with intensity in the sense that we love with greater affection. The idea here is that we love constantly, even when those we love are not conducting themselves in a loving manner. Peter says, be focused in prayer and maintain love for one another. The third principle is found in verse number nine. Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Most of the time in the New Testament, when the word hospitality is used, it's used with reference to how we treat strangers. Specifically in 1 John, John is dealing with the church at Ephesus. And John says, you have an obligation that when Christian ministers or missionaries are passing through your community, you will board them in, their, in your home and provide for their needs. That's basic Christian hospitality. That, that, that's the IMB approach of the first century, that you provide for their needs, shelter and food and water in order that they're able to continue carrying out their calling and advancing the kingdom of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. Well, that creates some opportunity for people to take advantage of that. And you can just sort of bounce around from home to home with little aspiration in the way of kingdom work mooching off the people of the church. 
So John gives some parameters for that, some rules for that. And he warns them that you need to make sure that the people that you're housing, enabling in their ministry, are preaching the message of Jesus Christ as Lord and not a gospel that's in conflict with the teaching of Jesus. He warns them, this is the way you go about this. And he, he holds this up as virtuous, as good, that you would show hospitality in that way. Most of the time, it's focused on strangers who come from abroad. But Peter narrows this down. Notice that Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. He's drawing this down to the local church level. And when you think about the context to which Peter writes, it makes all the sense in the world. John in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John is writing to Ephesus, a major urban hub. When Paul gives similar exhortations, he's writing to churches like Corinth and Philippi and the city of Thessalonica. These are urban hubs where tourism and travel and commerce and trade would have been a part, a commonplace part of everyday life. It would have been a natural thing for other believers to find their way through those cities. And given that most of the inns, most of the places that you would stay were given to outright depravity, it was not only inappropriate, but, but just not a good scenario for a Christian to stay in that setting. Be hospitable in those settings means embrace strangers, Christians who are believers in your home, enabling them to continue the work of ministry. But in the rural areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the likelihood of travelers passing through was much lower than in major urban hubs. Peter is not saying welcome strangers here. He's saying be hospitable in meeting the needs that arise within the body that you belong to. Perhaps even other bodies in your general area. Be hospitable to the bride of Christ. Be willing to meet their needs. And then he offers this qualification, which I think lends itself to the idea that he's focused here on local hospitality opportunities. Be hospitable without complaining. Now, I have found in ministry that it's much easier to muster a sense of mercy and compassion and even interest in meeting a need when that need is far off. There are a lot more churches who do a good job with international missions than there are those who do a good job with representing the mercy ministries of Jesus in their own communities. Because all we know of the far distant need is what we see in the nightly news or we hear from the mission pastor. But when it comes to local needs, we know the colors and the shades and all of the background that lent itself to this need arising the way that it has. And when the need arises, rather than being moved with mercy and compassion, the way we might be for that need in some far off place, the circumstances behind it we know not, we immediately begin to think of what might have been done differently that wouldn't have created this need in the first place. And we see those individuals in close proximity to us as reaping the fruit of poor decisions. And frankly, many times that is the case. But that doesn't lessen the weight of what the Apostle Peter calls us to here. 
Be hospitable to one another without complaining. In other words, be hospitable without letting your mind run first to what might have been done differently to alleviate this need. Just show mercy in the moment. Now listen, there are many times when discipling needs to happen, when further instruction needs to take place. The very ministry that you heard about early in our service dealing with personal financial issues and stewardship in general is a ministry of our church aimed at alleviating these needs and they're arising with such frequency in the future. But again, that ministry does not itself alleviate the call of God on our life to be present and ready, hearts full of mercy and compassion, to meet needs as they arise in our immediate context. The frustrations are inevitable in meeting the needs of the needy. Have you experienced this? If you try to be merciful and compassionate, it, it, most of the time it will bite you. There's a reason the proverb stands in our culture, no good deed goes unpunished. My wife has the spiritual gift of mercy. She sees the absolute best in everyone. She says that I do not have the spiritual gift of mercy. In fact, in jest, she says that I have the spiritual gift of prophecy. She says, bless their heart, and I say they're sorry, and they're always going to be sorry. I don't always say that. I don't always say that, but I need it, a little extra dose of what she's got. And brothers and sisters, you and I do as well. If you're not careful, if we're not careful, you will over the course of time get jaded and hardened at the needs that arise. My, my personal secretary for 12 years, the lady who was my personal secretary for 12 years in my former pastorate would come to my office on an almost weekly basis because of where we were located we, we interacted with a lot of people passing through and with a variety of needs. And she would come and she'd say, preacher. And she would flop down on the couch in my office with a smirk. And she would say, there's a need. And you know, I'm hard hearted. And what she meant by that was, Am I just, is, it, is it my frustration? Is it my callousing over the course of time? It's story after story after story. Or is my discernment radar really going off appropriately in this case? And we would have to work through those things. But you better know, if you seek to meet the needs of the needy, there will be challenges. But again, those challenges do not remove the responsibility Peter has saddled us with in this passage. We are to be hospitable and to do so without complaining. Fourth principle in our passage is the one Peter gives the most time to. Verses 10 and 11 are focused on this fourth principle, and here it is. Peter calls us to serve others in the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 10. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Just a few observations. One, every follower of Jesus, every person in this room, every person in the world who has been saved by the blood of Jesus 
enjoys a gifting from the Holy Spirit unique to each individual. If you have been saved by Jesus, God has given you a unique gifting meant for the strengthening of the local church and the advancement of the kingdom. Which by implication means that if you're not exercising the gift that God has given you, you are weakening the strength of the local church and inhibiting in some way the advancement of his kingdom. God gave you the gift he gave you because the kingdom needs that gifting. We are better together as a body when every member of the body is actively exercising the spiritual gift God has entrusted to you. And we are better together as the church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism church, when every individual and every body is exercising the gift God has entrusted to us. Every member of the church has been gifted by God supernaturally to do the work of ministry. Exercise that gift. Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, he should serve with the power supplied by the Spirit of God. Every person in the world, without exception, Believing and unbelieving has certain natural or physical capacities. There is only so much that you can physically do. You are only capable of so much. There are some of you who are born into this world with a sort of glowing disposition, and your heart has always been, to a greater degree than others, to love people, to show them mercy. You're just a naturally compassionate person. Others of you are not. Some of you are born with outstanding athletic ability. You're strong and you're fast and hand-eye coordination is good. You're just naturally, physically talented. And some of you are not. All of us have physical capabilities and limitations. Now, here's a damning observation when it comes to the church. For most Churches, at least in my observation, I'm speaking in the broadest of terms, for most churches and in most ministries, there's never an effectiveness experience that goes beyond the ceiling provided by the natural abilities of those in the body. That's a sad observation. What we're being called to is not to exercise our natural abilities or to meet our natural or physical capabilities, no matter how great they may be, but to go beyond that and to preach and to serve in the power supplied by God's Holy Spirit, which by far exceeds our natural capacities and abilities, so that when the fruit comes in, when the harvest is gathered, much glory and praise and honor would be given unto Jesus and not to the individuals he was pleased to use in the process of bringing in that harvest. We never get to this place because we are so radically individualistic. And we are by our nature so self-reliant. And we are so foolishly confident in our abilities, in our techniques, in our methods, and our resources. 
And what I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, is that nothing we can do in our own power has any eternal significance whatsoever. It is wood, hay, and stubble in the day of judgment. It is burned up and blown away as ash. But what we do in the power supplied by the Spirit of God will withstand the testing judgment of God as precious metals, silver and gold, bears eternal significance and will attest to the goodness of our God for all the ages. Don't you want to do more with your life than what you are naturally capable of doing in your own strength? Don't we want this race to count for more than it might otherwise? That God would do more with our measly life than we could ever imagine to do in our own strength or our own power. That's what Peter's calling us to in this passage. To come away from our self-reliance, from dependence on earthly resources, and to lean fully into the power of God's Spirit, making sacrifices in service. This is why we seldom get to this place of dependence on God, because we limit what we will do, what we desire to do, or frankly, what we do in general, to what we have the ability to do. And what God is calling us to is a complete and total dismissal of the absence of certain abilities a wholehearted reliance on the sufficiency of his spirit. In our weakness, he is strong. His grace is sufficient for you and sufficient for me. The outcome of our service in the spirit is that he would receive the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I, I would ask you in closing... Are you serving Christian brother or sister in this way? I would ask you first if you're serving at all. Think, think of this for a moment. The Bible is clear. The Apostle Paul speaks to this a number of times. Peter speaks to this idea here. Jesus speaks of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, even in the Great Commission. Specific gifting. Individual members of the body. Do you know how God has gifted you service. I'm astonished at how frequently I hear Christian folks say, I don't even know what my spiritual gifting is. How can you ever hope to serve, to exercise, to operate that gifting within the body if you've yet to even discover how it is that God has gifted you? Are you serving in this way, in a way that exceeds your natural abilities, the power of your personality, your natural Charisma. How is it that God has gifted you? It's a sad, unfortunate, and unchristlike thing that there would ever be a need within the body to which we would need to plead with brothers and sisters to serve in some capacity. You would think that there would be a quickness to yield to the spirit of Jesus who as king of all kings and lord of all lords observed of himself in his earthly ministry i came not to be served but to serve i think if you polled pastors and i don't think it would matter the size of the church or their context pastors in the west and i fear that this is increasingly the case in the east given the influence the west has in the East. I think if you talk to pastors in the Bible Belt, in pre-Christian context, in post-Christian context, I think the answer to this question would be the same virtually everywhere. 
If you ask what the biggest challenge to ministry is, what is the great threat, what is the enemy, what is it that you find yourself pushing back against again and again and again, I think that you would find almost universally that they would say it's a consumer mentality that exists within the church. The idea that we assemble this way as another stop along the way of our week, like we stop at Walmart or the grocery store or the department store, or we stop for an oil change, the way we stop in these various stops along the way in order that certain needs might be met for us, that we're able to leave feeling a sense of satisfaction or fulfillment and endure the week ahead. Now listen, I understand that there are certain expectations that ought to be met when the church gathers together. My prayer for you on a weekly basis is that when we gather, your souls will be well nourished through the feeding of God's word in reading and in preaching. That you'll have an outlet as an assembly of God's people to worship him in spirit and in truth, to give expression to what you feel in your heart for Jesus. There ought to be an expectation, certain expectations that should be met and should they not be met you should probably find somewhere else to be but you can never afford to lose sight of the reality that the assembled church is an opportunity to be in service to the church and you must never lose sight of the reality that the assembled church is not the only outlet for our service or the exercise of our spiritual gifts, but that every day of our life, God is affording us opportunity to serve him in a variety of ways, well beyond our natural ability, that all the glory and praise and honor be drawn to his name and his name alone forever and ever. Amen. This is what God has called us to. We're not here exclusively to get what we can get. As a matter of fact, what we do come to get and rightly expect to receive is only afforded us in order that we be re-energized to go and to pour ourselves out in the week ahead, a living offering, a living sacrifice, our reasonable service to God. We come here to rejoice in the past week's victories by the power of God's Spirit and to ready ourselves to be poured out yet again in the days that are to come. Brothers and sisters, serve. But don't do it in your own power or ability, but in the power supplied by God's Holy Spirit. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. I pray, God, that as we consider the teaching of this passage, that you would lead us to serve. That you'd forgive us where we grow lazy or slack or maybe self-reliant dependent on our resources or abilities. Help us to call on the anointing and the unction of your Holy Spirit that we might do what you've assigned to us in a way that by far surpasses our natural ability. God, I, I pray that what you'd be pleased to do through the individuals that make up this body and this body as a whole would be regarded by us and others who might observe as the work of God and not of man. Move among us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.